When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to take a moment to talk about a website provider that I use for my personal website, and that is Banzoogle. Banzoogle is a website provider built by musicians for musicians. It's super easy to get started. And for me, it's really important what I get out of a website when it terms to monetizing the website. So I really recommend Banzoogle for that reason, because they're really, really intuitive in terms of how to build a website, how to gain the most followers through mailing lists. It's kind of all in-house, very simple to use. And today with my affiliate link down in the podcast description notes, you can get 30 days for free, no credit card needed for you to kind of give it a try. It's a free trial. And then you could always upgrade to a plan later on, but 30 days free, no credit card needed. And I guarantee you won't be disappointed with Banzoogle. Again, use the affiliate link in my podcast description notes for more details. Welcome to the Violin Podcast, where we interview violinists from around the world. I'm your host, Eric Mogala. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you haven't done so already, if you're a new listener, please make sure to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It really helps us out to provide more great interviews for you. And in today's episode, we have a very cool and really special guest. Um, this is a violinist based in the Boston area. Her name is Gabriela Diaz. She specializes in contemporary music. And our conversation today talks about um, dealing with composers and working with composers, collaborating with composers, and also just other you know violinistic things that I think that'll uh, provide a lot of value for you today. But before we get to the episode, I just want to thank you for listening to the Violin Podcast. It's because of you that I want to talk to a great violinists, but also share these great conversations with you. And that's the whole purpose of the Violin Podcast, to provide great content for you, great conversations, so that way you can feel inspired or um, you get you know tidbits of knowledge on the podcast. Also... You know, the holidays are just around the corner, and I just want to do a little plug-in for FiddlerShop.com because they have amazing deals on all things accessories-related, violin-related, violin cases, strings, sheet music, you name it. Just want to share that FiddlerShop.com is where I recommend all my students to shop at because they offer really good rates as well as provide really good customer service and shipping. So just want to let you know that um, if you're ever in need of anything, you know, strings related, I'm going to leave a link down in the podcast description notes. So that way you can just click on the link and get to know FiddlerShop.com and the team over there. They're really nice. They're really great. So there's that. And now for the episode, I want to introduce you to Gabriela Diaz. Enjoy. Gabby, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the Violin Podcast. I know that you have a very busy season coming up, so I really, really value the time that we have together. How are you today? 
I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to be part of this podcast. I've so enjoyed listening to your episodes and you're it's such a great resource for violinists of all levels. So I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you for being a listener. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, you know, we have some very interesting conversations and, you know, sometimes we kind of go off the rail. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk, I have a bunch of talking points that I want to talk to you about, you know, you're heavily involved in the Boston new music scene and the new music scene in general, but I kind of want to get to know you first. Um, how did you start with the violin? Uh, where are you from? And how did, how did your journey with the violin get you to where you are today? Sure. Uh, I'm originally from Georgia and uh, my parents are both musicians. My father is a violist and my mother is a pianist. Uh, my dad was in the Atlanta Symphony uh, and has been an educator for his whole life. Uh, he grew up in Chile and so was very active in the musical scene in Chile until he came to America and also uh, had a Fulbright where he studied with William Primrose, the great violist William Primrose. The great Primrose. Uh, the great Primrose. And then my mother is a pianist. She's originally from Georgia and a really beautiful collaborative pianist and musician. And so I was lucky to have music around all the time when I was a kid. I also have um, older brothers and a sister. They're about 20 years older than me. Um, and my two brothers are both professional musicians as well. And so when I was a kid, they were not living at home anymore, but I had them to look up to as they were in, you know, starting their careers. Are you the youngest uh, when of I was three? A kid. I am. I'm the youngest of four. Yeah. Oh, youngest of four. Okay. So very yeah. musical family. That's great. Very, very <laughs> lots of music everywhere. Uh, so it was a little bit like, you know, I just, uh, I heard music from, the womb and then you know like got uh interested in playing piano first uh with my mom as my teacher and then started violin when i was six with my dad as my teacher and studied with him until i went to new england conservatory um so studied with him my whole life and my mom on piano uh for in bits stops and starts with piano but violin was constant the whole time and uh, yeah, and then went to New England Conservatory and did my undergrad and master's there and then have been living here in Boston ever since. Well, I'm sure your father is super proud of you. I'm kind of the same way where uh, the listeners of the violin podcast are familiar that um, my violin teacher was my aunt for 10 mm -hmm. years, you know, and I just studied with her, studied with her. And then um, I also ended up in Boston uh, to study with the uh, um, at the Boston Conservatory. And I was and then I've stayed in Massachusetts since. So yeah. Um, but I want yeah, to dive intense in. Have, yeah. yeah, no, no, go Sorry. ahead. Go ahead. I was, it's intense having a family member as your teacher because it's uh, like, especially with my dad, you know, if I was practicing my room, I'd hear him like in the kitchen be like, out of tune, you know, like just. <laughs> well, thank, I mean, uh, for you, it was your father. For me, like my mother, yeah. she was a pianist also. That's how I got into violin playing. But my, you know, my aunt was never in the room while I was practicing. So there was that maybe that level of like, there wasn't that much level of stress as I'm sure you had. Like right. if you played a scale, if you played something out of tune, you're, everyone would hear it. It's like right. everybody would go into the room and be like, you're out of tune, go fix it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but was there ever a moment where you're growing up where that happened, like a funny story? Well, I mean, it was sort of like every day. Oh, <laughs> there wow. was something that would <laughs> happen. But, you know, it was also, it's something that sort of, even though I didn't necessarily appreciate it when it was happening in the moment, but I do look looking back on it now. I mean, it's like those kinds of 
you know, paying attention to what you're doing when you're practicing is really important and not just, I mean, it is important to play just to play and to have fun, but then when you're actually trying to get something accomplished, you do have to pay attention uh, to what you're doing. And that was, I think, what my dad was <laughs> essentially doing uh, from across the room when it, whatever he might say was just to sort of help me focus whatever it was I was doing instead of just kind of like playing things a bunch of times without thinking about it. Well, at least you had some, you know, some structure that you were taught from a very early age. You're like, okay, this is how you practice. This is how you achieve your result. And I'm, and I want to get into that later on in the podcast on how you approach practice and um, how you approach new music, which actually is a good segue to what I want to talk about with you because you are heavily involved in new music. What, yeah. what got you into new music? Cause I'm so curious, you know, you're like a, a, a champion of new music. You're so heavily involved in the Boston community when it comes to new music. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's, it was sort of a, I wouldn't say it was random, but when I was in high school, I used to go after, after I was done with high school, I would go to the university where my parents taught and I would go to the library to do my homework. And I would always, this is back in the days when it was more common to use LPs and I would like pull an LP off of the stacks and sort of just randomly pick something in the classical section and listen to it while I was doing my homework and waiting for my parents to be done with their teaching for us to all go home. And one day I just randomly picked an LP of Charles Ives and Ooh. it was his piece Variations on America. And I had not encountered Ives up to this point in my life and when I listened to it I was just so overwhelmed I was like what is this music I didn't know music could do this and like have so much going on at the same time but still be so engaging and so fun to listen to and I got really interested in Ives at that point um and then I went home and I started talking to my parents about it and my dad you know up to this point you know, when you're a teenager, you don't always think about what your parents did when they were younger. And my dad had been heavily involved in the contemporary music scene in Chile in the 60s and the 70s. And so he started telling me all of these like wacky stories about the crazy music he had played then, you know, with like ping pong balls and a piano and, you know, like all kinds of wild stuff happening on stage. And I was so excited and just totally shocked by it because up to that point, my training had been very traditional, uh, which was great, but uh, it was so fun to, to sort of get to know of this about this other side of music, of classical music, Western music. And so when I got to NEC, um, the first week that I was in school, I got a random phone call from someone uh, named Steve Drury, who is a, a teacher at NEC. And he, I think, just sort of was randomly calling freshmen to see if I wanted to be part of an ensemble to back up a banjo player in a contemporary music piece for banjo and strings. That just and sounds like, like bad news right there. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, banjo concerto, I would love to do that. Uh, and so then that sort of got me interested uh, in you know, what else is out there? What, what don't I know? I mean, I know there's so much that I don't know about music. Um, and through a couple of mentors at NEC, Steve Drury being one of them, John Heiss, who was director of the Contemporary Ensemble and also a huge Ives enthusiast, uh, and a couple of other teachers that I had at NEC really sort of helped me learn about all of this incredible music that's been happening for, you know, the past century that I didn't know anything about. 
and that's how I really got started. And once it got going, it was like, oh, I just love this. I love doing crazy things on my own instrument. I love hearing sounds I'd never heard before, encountering brand new pieces for the first time. And I was totally hooked. Man, what a way to start your new music journey with Charles Ives. That's he's for those of you who are listening, we have a lot of beginners on the violin podcast. Charles Ives is a 20th century composer. You believe he was also an insurance agent was he not right. yeah absolutely so yeah. If, if you're ever curious about his history he has a very unique history as a, as a composer and an insurance agent which um i found i find fascinating i yeah i think there's something really liberating about new music where you're not you're not tied down to these traditions you know you really um when i hear your recordings on uh on youtube you are definitely you know you're it's a clearly a world premiere, but you're making it your own. You find a voice in these new music pieces. How do you approach new music when you're giving, when you're talking to a composer, when you're collaborating with a composer? What does that conversation look like? What are what are some ideas that are thrown on the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, one of I think one of the most exciting things is to perform a piece for the very first time, or to you know see music as it's coming together out of the composer's mind onto paper and then to you as the performer. Uh, you know, we're really, we're the the link for the audience from composer, you know, like to the audience hearing the piece for the first time. And I think it's a, it's a tremendous responsibility that the performer has to represent the composer's ideas in the most authentic way while also like, you know, making sure that you are still present as a musician as well as the performer. Um, and it's just such an exciting relationship to to be able to like, you know, give an audience member this brand new piece for the first time. And I think, you know, so much of that comes with like a lot of a lot of practice, a lot of thinking about the music, you know, sometimes with the with different kinds of contemporary music, there could be a new kind of notation, a new kind of uh way of thinking about intonation and a new way of playing your instrument with, you know, maybe not even the bow anymore, but with like a toothbrush, you know, and so like ways of uh, making that your own and really feeling comfortable so that, you know, you're not worried about anything when you're on stage, but you're really just able to give the piece life uh, in its most authentic way, uh, hopefully the way that the composer intended. That's awesome. You know, I was I was just thinking of something that um, in like music history classes back in, you know, grad school and undergrad, you know, there was always this question of like, well, what's after Beethoven? What's next? Right. What mm-hmm. what do we do after the ninth? You know, mm-hmm. what do we do after Mises Solemnus? What are what are the things that we can do? But you you find that new music and is live and well. Right. Oh, yeah. It's so exciting. I mean, one thing that I always go back to thinking about is uh, Pierre Boulez was an incredibly important figure for me in my sort of like figuring out who I wanted to be as a musician and getting to work with him was like probably one of the most life-changing musical experiences that I ever had. And I remember him saying, you have to play new music as if you've known it your entire life and old music as if you're seeing it for the first time. So I think that sort of feeling that whatever you've encountered on the page, whether it's from 1720 or from 2021, that you're giving it all of the, all of you and all of your intention and goodwill. I mean, like, you know, I think that's also really important that you come to pieces, whether it's by Beethoven or whether it's by Chirino, that it's like that you're giving all of your goodwill to the piece to make it to make it the best that it possibly can be. 
it's very similar to what you just said, uh, what Pablo Casal says, you know, try to make Mozart sound like Chopin and Chopin sound like Mozart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's as if you're looking at the piece for the first time and you have to make it so exciting as if you've been playing it for the last 20 years. Absolutely. But you're constantly, and, uh, yeah. yeah. It, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, in the end, I mean, all of it is human expression and it just comes out in different ways. So, I mean, it may not sound as familiar to someone, you know, like as Mozart does, but it doesn't mean that it's not communicating the same kinds of like essential human feelings um, and emotions. So it's just sort of finding those things in these different kinds of languages. Yeah, now that I'm speaking to you in person, I actually had the privilege to watch you play at uh, New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall. There's a summer um, Institute of Contemporary Performance practice that happens every year. And um, I had the privilege to watch you play. And you are actually like really, you know, you're actually singing with your violin, even though it's like a lot of avant-garde, but you're making it your own. It's really gnarly and cool stuff. I love it. It's the best. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, what was it like working with Boulez? Because Boulez is a huge figure um, in new music. And I want, if, if you can speak about uh, Pierre Boulez to our audience, that would be amazing. Yeah, that was an incredible experience. I mean, I think, you know, when we study Boulez in music school, we hear a lot of stories about when when he was younger, the sort of enfant terrible and like, you know, like, you know, just sort of pushing and breaking down all these boundaries and uh, breaking all these walls and saying all these really intense uh, things. And so when I first got to meet him, uh, he used to run the Lucerne Festival Academy, which was a basically like a new music festival for college age, post-college age uh, students to just a new music intensive program in Switzerland. And uh, when I first met him, I, you know, that was what I associated with him. We were like these incredible recordings, this like incredible mind, all of these incredible writings about music. And then these kind of intense stories about him as like a very iconoclastic person. And then he turned out to just be the most delightful, lovely sort of grandfatherly character, uh, not exactly what I had imagined going into it. And he was just so... Um, such a beautiful human being to us, all of us students who were like so bright-eyed and excited about contemporary music. And he was able to hone that uh, in these really in really interesting programs, uh, introducing many of us to music that we had never experienced before, but in a way that sort of set us up to play it beautifully and with a lot of understanding. And one of the, one of the sort of most interesting experiences for me is that he he wrote a solo violin piece called Antem, uh, which is a really incredible piece. And I had learned it uh, before my first summer and then, you know, like tried to sort of get up all my courage to ask him if I could play it for him. And I was too nervous to, to and so actually it wasn't until my third summer at Lucerne that I finally like got up the courage to ask him to play the piece for him. Legs are trembling all across. <laughs> I know I was You're just like, like sweating, yeah. Niagara Falls sweating. You're like, it's like exactly. can you listen to me? <laughs> Please. <laughs> you know, like could barely hold the violin. I was like sh- quivering like a leaf. Uh, By the way, th- that's, that's a moment where you forget to play violin, like all entirely, yeah. you know, you, you <laughs> exactly. get the yips. You're like, it's like what like, am I doing here? <laughs> but you know, it's like, I was, I had an interview with late Sid Diggs, like what's a B half flat? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's awesome. Uh, but, exactly. you know, I actually want to pose a question for you um, regarding Boulez's music, because, you know, my, you know, there, you know, there are some family members of mine that are 
musicians as well. And a family member says that, you know, I think we're not ready to really understand Boulez's music. I think maybe in 20, 30, 40 years, our, you know, our ears are going to be more accustomed to those kinds of sounds. So I want, I was wondering if you could comment on that and um, how you interpret Boulez's music because it's really, really unique. It's very different. And will it be, you know, will his music be more appreciated or more popular in the coming years? What, what do you think? I, I mean, I hope so. I think the thing with Boulez and, and other, maybe if, if we call them sort of like modernist composers where the language is maybe a little bit less familiar to audience members, I think it's it's very easy for, for us to sort of just be like, oh, I don't get it. Like even before hearing it, like just the, the name Boulez, it's like, oh, I don't under, I, I'm not gonna understand it. It's like, forget and it. I know what I like, like, I know my taste. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that often, uh, you know, that sets us up in a certain mindset while we're listening. And I do think, you know, whether it's as a performer, a teacher, a listener, a student, like it is so important to be open all the time and just be willing to like let it in without judging it uh, as much as is possible. And of course we have, you know, all of our preconceived ideas about what we think music is or what we think we like, but those evolve over time, just like our tastes and food and art change over time. And I think we'd just be being willing to be open to that kind of thing uh, is really important. But I'll also, I mean, you know, Boulez's music is, is all gestures and whether the gesture is a gesture of like a singing line that maybe the notes don't sing in the same way that you, that they do in like a Mozart aria, but it still has the same expressive content. Um, you know, when I worked on on Tem with him, he spent so much time just telling me about the gestures of each section of the piece. And so, you know, like there's one section where there's a lot of like really fast sort of like, you know, the bow, bow bounces really quickly and it's just very like sort of shimmery. And he was like, oh yeah, I was sort of imagining a goldfish in a pond like whipping around. And all of a sudden that gesture doesn't feel like, you know, a septuplet that has to be every note exactly the same, but it's a gesture of seven notes that has direction and momentum. And I think when you start listening in, in that sort of gestural way and really musical way, it's, it's much easier it's, and it's much easier to sort of experience the piece as it's happening instead of sort of judging as, as it's happened, like, oh, well, why didn't that note sound more consonant? Then you know, like that dissonance is upsetting or whatever. But just sort of let you letting it wash over you um, and experience it in time. And I, one thing also uh, that I have, uh, I think Daniel Barenboim said something like, "You can't judge a piece until you've listened to it twenty times." Mm. So I mean, that's sort of a random number, but I think you know, just like really giving yourself time to immerse yourself in a piece's language uh, and scope. And then like, if you don't like it, that's cool. It doesn't, you don't have to like everything, but at least you've given it a real chance uh, before sort of deciding that it wasn't for you. It's like the same thing. Like you can't trust a person who's only read one book on one topic. Right. <laughs> it's like, you can't, you, you like, you don't have enough information. You know, if one book, right. if you only get one opinion, then it's, uh, then it's just simply not enough. But I also find what's so cool about working with composers that they're alive, right? Like if you, you yeah. have the opportunity to be like, oh, I, I imagined this while I was, you know, while I was composing this and this is the best way I can write it down on paper, but it doesn't have to be like perfect. I think sometimes we're, sometimes uh, we're, it's really difficult to 
be slave like we're not slaves to the music you know what i'm saying it's like right we, we, it's it could be all in for interpretation especially if you have a person if you have a composer right in front of you they can say well maybe that's too much or actually no i could use more of right a gesture um how many world premieres you often do like on, on pre pre-covid days like I'm so curious, like how many world premieres, how many composers do you usually talk to when it comes to all this? That is such a hard <laughs> number to come I feel like with. it's in, I feel like it's like 50 <laughs> or 100 world premieres a year. I, I feel it's like a lot. I mean, especially when, you know, if you're in a in a sort of situation working with younger composers at like university going to do a residency or something, and then you might have like 10 or 15 pieces that are brand new that you do over the course of a week. Uh, like like with composers. university composers, students. Univer so. Yeah, student composers or like different festivals that are uh, like sort of more geared towards new music where you're premiering a new piece, you know, almost every night. Uh, it is, That's I, wild. I, I, yeah, it's a lot. And it's so exciting. I mean, you know, every, every single piece is as different as the people who wrote them. So it's, uh, it's, it's constantly engaging and always really fun to get have to you, know. Have you ever repeated the same piece twice? Like, um, meaning like, has there has there been a piece like in in recent memory that you can think of that you've been performing like in your regular repertoire? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's uh, one interesting thing about this whole past year and a half was it you know did give a lot of us a lot of time to practice and learn new repertoire. Uh, and what's exciting about you know learn I I did learn a lot of new solo pieces, uh, particularly by bipop composers over this past year and like those are now going to be in my repertoire forever so like you know pieces that were written in the past couple of years now I am so excited to you know continue playing them in concerts and recitals for you know the rest of my life so yeah it is sad though sometimes you know a piece that you really love maybe they're because of either the situation or the instrumentation, you may only get to play it once and then not see it again for, you know, a couple of years. But then it's always like, you know, coming back to an old friend uh, when when the opportunity comes. But at least you have a lot of options while you're, you know, performing, you know, like, okay, this, this is for this audience. This is what I'm thinking about programming. Um, talk to me about programming. Do you um, have like a certain theme when you program or are you just kind of like, do like a full seven course meal and it's like different stuff in every meal. I think, you know, it is so important to, to me, it is so important to give the audience something that they don't know. <laughs> uh, and whether that is by a living composer or a recent composer that they've not heard of, or maybe, you know, like a Baroque composer that has been, you know, overlooked by, by, you know, what, like, you know, Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, like someone like that, whose music is thankfully having a resurgence now, but, you know, we haven't played it in, you know, <laughs> several centuries. Uh, I think it is really important to offer that to an audience that like, here's music that maybe you haven't encountered before, but this is why I love it. And this is why I love to play it. And I hope that you love it too, which Hopefully then maybe they'll go home, do a YouTube search, try to find out more about the composer, you know, snowball into getting to know more about someone that you, that was maybe overlooked unfairly or, you know, just that hasn't, hasn't been known yet. I think Boston has a really 
great new music scene that's often overlooked. I think when I was studying new music, I had the opportunity to study, not study, but had a masterclass with Claire Chase, who mm -hmm. is a founding director of International Contemporary Ensemble in New York. And they're known for new music. They're like all about the new music and they're doing crazy stuff over there. Also encouraged to check them out because they're doing awesome things. But I remember I was doing like this mini kind of master class with Claire Chase. It was like a, a violin, cello, bass flute and bass clarinet. It was wild. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she was so excited about, you know, just giving us this new music. It's like, oh, these are like really great ideas. You can try, you know, doing this. And that's what made me really excited about new music. But I feel like, you know, we often idolize the greats like Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, you know, and I feel like a lot of people are intimidated by new music and avant-garde. What do you do you do like uh, performance lectures? Do you talk to the audience to educate them about the pieces that you're performing? How does how does that look like? And how do you get the your community and your audience engaged with you on, on stage? Yeah, I do think it is an, it is uh, important to let your audience know what you think is amazing about the piece that you're playing. Um, and if that means, you know, like giving historical context about the life of the composer, so they understand, uh, you know, maybe why they haven't heard about this composer before. I think that's incredibly vital information for an audience. So it doesn't just, it's not just some random name that doesn't mean anything to them, but, um, has some, uh, a little bit more, it makes it a little bit more personal for them, whatever personal stories about the composer. And then, you know, if it's a, if it's a piece that involves some sort of different kind of technique that maybe they haven't heard or seen before on the violin, whether it's, you know, some sort of extended technique that you're creating a different kind of sound color than what we normally associate with the beautiful singing violin sound, or if it's like using other kinds of implements while you're playing. I think it is, you know, good to set up the audience with sort of a, a knowledge of the piece so that they feel like they're coming into it understanding it a little bit already instead of just being sort of like overwhelmed and then it's you know the possibility of shutting off while listening is hopefully lessened by that little bit of explanation about the music so now we get to the practice portion of the violin podcast mm -hmm. because <laughs> i'm so curious when you're getting this new music what's the first thing that you do when you when you're given this new music well, I think, you know, that that is different piece to piece, you know, depends on if I'm familiar with the language that the composer's writing in. So if it's a certain kind of intonation system, if I already know how to think about that, then great. If I don't, then maybe that involves research with, uh, you know, reading about stuff online about the intonation system or the notation system. Um, if the piece is influenced by a certain kind of music that I'm not familiar with, then maybe, you know, listening to music from different cultures, if that's part of the composer's uh, part of the piece. Uh, and then, you know, it's just going slowly. I think that goes for whether a piece it was written yesterday or if it's by Mozart. I mean, you know, just like really not pushing yourself beyond where what you can comprehend in that moment. So, you know, if you know, obviously, like with newer pieces where there's not a history of, you know, bowings and fingerings of like how you would normally think about shaping a phrase, you have to really go from zero. So like, you know, where do I think this gesture is 
headed and going and what Boeing fingering sound articulation do I need to create to make that most clear so that that gesture pops out to the audience? Um, you know, I always think like, wouldn't it be great if somebody's hearing a, a piece played for the first time and you can actually sort of imagine how it's written, uh, like what it would look like on the page. I felt that way a lot about how Bula's conducted. Like it was so clear, this like the structure of the piece and the gestures of the piece were so clear in how his hands moved. It's like, you could have, you know, written it down. And um, I think, you know, we wanna be playing in a way that is as clear as that, as, poss as you know, possible for us. Yeah, but really, really yeah. straight, really stay true to the print. True to the print. And then also like making sure that you're still there too, as a musician, that like, that you're interpreting the print in a way that makes sense to you so that you're able to, you know, make the gesture come out in a way that makes sense to you. Um, and hopefully then that will be something that's compelling to the audience. You're like, oh yeah, I understand that sort of like sighing gesture or that like, you know, aggressive sort of screaming gesture because like that's something familiar, whether even if it, the, the notes or the sounds that are creating that are different than what you might normally think of. <laughs> The reason why I ask that is because I came across a very interesting recording of you playing, uh, which is the Ueno violin uh, chamber Ueno, yeah. concert. Ueno? Ken, Ken Ueno, yeah. That is gnarly stuff. Yeah. It's like gnarly <laughs> it's stuff. Very um, cool. I'll, I'll post a link in the in the episode notes because I also love that I checked that Tchaikovsky little. Right. Um, I was <laughs> a listening. Little Tchaikovsky yeah, quote, yeah. yeah, a little Tchaikovsky quote. I was listening to it with my wife. She's like, "Oh, that was that was quite lovely." That whoa, whoa, what happened next? Can, <laughs> yeah. So, talk to me about preparing that kind of piece because it's not just you solo violin. It's like you with an orchestra right. and you're pre approaching with a an new ensemble. piece with an ensemble. Can you talk a bit about that rehearsal process and you know the steps leading up to a performance? Sure. So that that was an exciting thing where that Ken is a Ken Wayno is a incredible composer, a good friend of mine. And that was a piece written for me. And we premiered it in San Francisco. I can't remember how many years ago. Uh, and it's for violin and ensemble. And the ensemble is a really unusual instrumentation. And actually Ken created um this instrument where like uh it's like now I forget if it's clarinet or saxophone and it has like tubing like um it's okay <laughs> uh, I can't remember anyway like is, they cre it creates can it we creates apologize a, yeah <laughs> um hookah hookah sax that's what it's called like hookah tubing um so it like from the body of the instrument going to the mouthpiece there's like all this extra tubing which like creates a totally different sound color coming out of that instrument in addition to like all kinds of interesting percussion and string techniques that are really different uh so that was really fun because I there's also a lot of interesting sort of like percussion cadenza writing for the violin where I'm like tapping on the violin and doing sort of like left hand tapping on the fingerboard uh that's involves a lot of sort of like choreography of like figuring out how your arms are moving to so in in addition to just thinking about like am I going up or down bow it's like how is my bow moving also sort of like swishing along the string on the fingerboard in a you know like how do I choreograph that with what my left hand is doing so that I'm you know, like creating this cloud of sound that Ken wanted so that was a it was a really really fun experience uh, working on that piece. I have had the chance to play that piece again, which was great. Coming back to it a couple of years later, uh, with a different ensemble here in Boston called Sound Icon, and 
coming back to it was really interesting because I, you know, you figure out a couple of different ways of playing that make things a little bit more uh, easy or the choreography a little bit more seamless and trying to get these techniques that were new to me at the time. Uh, now, now that I had more time to kind of think about it uh, in between performances, you know, making it even more musically successful because of just, you know, coming like any piece coming back to it again, hopefully you bring something new to it. <laughs> yeah, but that was a really, really fun experience, that piece. And the moment you put the violin as a percussion instrument, oh man, the sky's the limit for all these composers. Like, wait, right. I, can, I, can, wait <laughs> I can tap on this. I can play on this. Exactly. I can use my bow. I can do my thing. It's just, I'm not giving composers any ideas right now, aren't I? Oh. <laughs> I remember. It's so um, I mean, oh sorry, go ahead. No, I'll, I remember just uh, just a moment where um, Luis Andreessen was in Boston. Uh, he recently uh, passed away, unfortunately, but he is a really well known Dutch composer, and he had a lot of pieces where he was singing while playing the violin. Did you ever experience that as well, where you had to sing and play at the same time? Yeah, actually, in one of the Andres the Andreessen solo piece, the um, right, yeah, it was a solo violin piece. Yeah, Zania, where you sing and play at the same time. Um, yeah, I have had to do that. And what what's always very funny to me that I don't totally understand is I feel like I can sing in tune and I can play in tune, but then when I have to do it together, it's like I can't do it at all. And it makes me like all of these combining both you know, together is like how tough. do you do it? And even just thinking about, you know, all these incredible like rock musicians and singer-songwriters who can play and sing so easily at the same time. And I was like, I can't do it at all. And I remember there's so like so, yeah, it's like you're singing like like a like a half step or a whole step above like the piece that like the, above what you're playing on the violin and you kind of have yeah. to have two brains you know you have to have one brain one ear listening to what your violin is doing and then you have to completely ignore that make sure that's in tune and then also do something with another side of your brain which i find totally incredible and i have a lot of respect who can for people who can do that oh for sure and much less thinking about like the diction of what you're you know what singers have to think about all the time and like meaning it's like oh so much <laughs> Yeah, you're you're a one person show at that point. You know, you exactly. can be stomping for percussion, you can be singing, yeah. you could be doing all sorts of things. But um I would love to talk about the violin that you play on because we mm -hmm. uh because on the violin podcast we've talked about Guarneri, Del Jesus, we've talked about Stradivari, but we have not talked about Jean Baptiste Villon, which is a violin mm -hmm. that you currently play on. So I was wondering yes. if you could share your experience with us. Yeah, this is an incredibly lucky uh thing for me to be playing on this violin. It's owned by a scientist uh, who used to live here in Boston and lives in New York. And he is himself a really great amateur violinist and very much a violin enthusiast. And he has a lot of really incredible instruments that he loans out to players. And so I had gotten to know him a couple of years ago and basically just sort of like, it was like, hey, would you like to play on this viome? And I was like, oh, please. Yes. Wait, hold on a second. Do you, do you have a do you have a couple more viomes that I can try yeah, right. like in, in the closet somewhere? Right. Like away from like the violin shops, just like <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's been such an incredible experience getting to know this instrument. I you know, I think for all of us our uh, relationship with our instrument is incredibly personal and it really, you know, it becomes, you know, like a friend, sometimes a friend who is, makes things hard for you on some days, but you know, it's, it's a beautiful instrument. It's, it's in incredible condition. Um, the owner had taken incredible care with this instrument. And I just feel so lucky every day that I, uh, get to 
play on it. I'm just like, oh, what a, I, it's what a joy to have this here and to be able to play on it. And, um, and then also just, I feel, yeah, incredibly lucky. So what are some, char- <laughs> yeah. What are, what are some characteristics that you can describe about the violin? Because when I was listening to your recordings, like especially solo violin and the Dueno uh, violin chamber concerto, I, the f- first word that came to my mind is brilliant. Like the sound is quite brilliant, you know, like all the strings seem to be very well balanced and uh, yeah. Yeah. Can, can you share your thoughts? Yeah. I think, you know, the, the E string and in particular is a really beautiful E string sound. It's not, you know, I, you know, the E string being the thinnest string and uh, is, can sometimes be the, be a hard one to control sound on just because it, it can, you know, like really attack you sometimes, but this has a really beautiful, you know, like, uh, spinning sound on the E string. And I, I think also, yeah, like you said, the, the four strings are really evenly balanced. So it's, it's easy to play in a certain way because it feels like very stable. Um, although of course, like any of any instrument, the humidity and cold and all that stuff, sort of the violin gets confused for a little while, <laughs> but we have to wait Especially for with it. that New England weather, man. The I New know. England weather. Yeah. We actually had a uh, violin maker, Douglas Cox and Adam Kologi on the violin, on the violin podcast. And they suggested, because we're, we're, we're in, you know, by the time this episode is released, we're in fall, you know, we're in like right. full transition season. Right. And uh, yeah. for all of you who are frustrated with your violence, don't panic. Don't panic. You just, <laughs> it'll, get better. it'll get better. Just make sure that, you know, the transitions are smooth. You know, if you yeah. have like a one humid room and then you have one dry room, then the violins are going to go berserk. Um, have you, have you found the have you found that to be the case with your violin? Because, you know, Viom is a is French maker and, you know, different kinds of wood and sort all, all sorts of things. But do you find that to be the same with the uh, New England weather? Does your violin get a little moody? Oh, for sure. Like oh. once it's dry, dry, it's, it's really not happy. So I do have to be really, <laughs> really careful about, you know, keeping the humidifier in my practice room going and then, you know, having the humidifier in the case and like just making, you know, putting on the extra case outside of my case when, when it's colder, just to protect it even just a little bit more, trying not to be outside for forever with the instrument, you know, it's, it definitely just want to, you know, prov- try to keep it as happy as possible, knowing that there will be moments of sadness for the poor thing. Uh, when it these gets viol- these violins, I, I tell you, they're sometimes divas. You know? I know. <laughs> they're so much, they're so they're fickle. Th- they're fickle <laughs> when, when the slightest thing is off, the stars yeah. are not aligned in one particular way. All of a sudden the violin goes berserk. Exactly. Um, <laughs> can you share with us what kind of strings you play on? Because you, you did, you do have that brilliant tone. I would love for all the mm-hmm. advanced violin nerds and professional violin nerds um, like <laughs> me uh, know what kind of strings you play on. Sure. So I, I, you know, I have tried, I've made myself crazy going through thousands of kinds of string combinations. And what I've settled on most recently uh, was actually the last thing that um, this very awesome uh, violin adjuster uh person Ken Meyer in Boston suggested, which is Ava Parazzi's on everything. Um, and then the G string is an Ava Parazzi gold. Ooh, that's interesting. Because so normally gold, Ava Parazzi's yeah. are like very high tension strings and then you have the gold. Right, right. So that one I think like helps mellow, <laughs> mellow it out a little bit. Uh, but I have, you know, a couple of my friends have gotten really into using the olives on D and G. So, you know, gut uh, core and that has 
been intriguing to try, but then there's also part of me that's like, I found something that works. Maybe I should just not, not yeah. test it. <laughs> what, what, yeah, especially like with the olives, I find that um, from what I've heard from people is that they are, they also get quite moody. You know, they are right. they're quite inconsistent. Like I found that the Parastro Passiones strings, like mm -hmm. the, the, the regular ones and then the solo strings, the solo ones are so loud, you know, like you can project, right. Like if you're in Boston Symphony Hall, you can project no problem in those strings, but then they like last a month and they're not right. quite <laughs> the most, you know, like our pockets are not that deep. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, Gabby, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and I'm so glad I made a new friend. Um, I'm also in Eastern Massachusetts, so I would love to, you know, once, you know, hopefully things are popping up again, um, then that'll be It'll be wonderful to see you perform. Yeah, um, can you, you talk about some of the projects that you're involved with, especially um, Hope Boston, Hope Boston Music Project, because you're doing yes. some really amazing things. And I would love for, for people who are in the Boston area to kind of get in touch with what you guys are doing, because it's a really great cause. Thank you. Yeah, this has been something really meaningful for me to be part of over this past pandemic time. Um, Back when, back in March of last year, when things, the numbers were very bad here in Boston, there was a pop-up hospital called Boston Hope that uh, was built in the one of the convention centers uh, in Boston. And it, was it Heinz? Heinz Convention. Uh, it wasn't in Heinz. It was one of the ones, sort of like, like more the like oh, seaport side. Seaport. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Hyatt hotels. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the the doctor who was made the chief medical officer of that pop-up hospital, Ron Hirschberg, along with Dr. Lisa Wong, who's like an incredible uh, doctor uh, finding the, the links between music and medicine. She's one of my heroes. The two of them together sort of pictured a hospital to treat COVID patients that would not only treat COVID, but would treat the whole human. So like a holistic approach, a holistic approach. So in addition to, of course, all of the medical stuff that was going on there to treat them uh, and to treat their symptoms and the uh, and the virus. They also made uh, the hospital, you know, like you, you could have dance lessons during the day. There was, you know, like meditation and yoga. And then there was also a musical component where I was part of the team that sort of with Lisa and Ronnie that got all this going, where we put together videos, um, which you can find online of you know, different musicians in the Boston area, myself included, uh, making music videos for the patients going through this at Boston Hope. So they were sort of very much tailored towards this particular community at Boston Hope and the videos, uh, someone donated a bunch of tablets to Boston Hope with headphones for the patients to be able to watch these videos anytime they wanted. Um, while they were being while they were being rehabilitated there. And so that was the first part of Boston Hope was us putting together these music videos. And then once things um, started going with the vaccine centers, we transitioned to performing live at the vaccine centers. Uh, and then there was also simultaneously um, with New England Conservatory and us and Mass General Hospital, uh, this really incredible program of matching New England Conservatory students with MGH doctors and nurses and staff and giving the NEC students giving Zoom music lessons to the doctors and nurses and staff because, you know, like, I mean, I can't even imagine 
the stress and the the just the the worries that these doctors were like you know living with all day long you know with covid um and just being able to uh have something as a release for that through music and then now the next the final uh, we're not final, but the phase that we're in now, which we're calling the musical boosters, is that we're going to go back into, uh, I think, MGH, here, hopefully here in Chelsea and MGH in Boston, and then be playing live either outside until it gets too cold, um, or hopefully inside in some lobbies also to just bring music to people. Um, because, I mean, this is one of the things that for me is one of the most important parts about being a musician is, you know, this communication and sharing connection with another person. Um, I think sometimes we get so, you know, we think about an audience as like a C <laughs> that doesn't, you know, but they are all individual people and you're communicating individually. And so for me as, um, you know, I was a cancer survivor, uh, I am a cancer survivor and uh, it's been really important to me throughout the course of my life to be giving music back uh, by playing in cancer wards. And so this Boston Hope project feels like a very natural extension of that, of just making sure that the people who need music to, you know, get them out of whatever difficult thing that they're going through physically and mentally to, to take them to a different place, that that's available to them anytime that they need it. Yeah, it was such a cool project. I didn't want to leave the podcast without, you know, having you say a few words. And if you're in the Boston area, please make sure to check out, you know, you know, Gabby Diaz and what she's doing with that, because it's really awesome work. You know, you're giving back to the community. You're also, you know, you're such a champion for new music. I had such an awesome time talking with you about all Thank this you. stuff. And um, I'll leave links for uh, for people to learn more about you in the podcast episode notes and if you like this episode of the violent podcast please make sure to hit the subscribe button also make sure to share it give us a rating because it helps us a lot as a podcast to continue providing more awesome interviews like this one and uh, leave a comment down below if you really like the like the podcast episode and um you know some thoughts on what we can do to improve so uh gabby thanks so much and i hope to actually run into you in boston in one of these days i hope so yeah i think that'll be it. great yes let's plan on it uh, thanks thanks so much thank you